0: We sing some serious gospel songs this morning, right? Uh, They might not have been gospel style, but they were gospel content. And that's what matters most, right? Oh man, we sing about Jesus taking our sin upon himself and suffering the wrath and the death and the punishment that we deserve for sin. And how he died for us and was buried. And then we sing about how he rose again, right? Victorious over sin and death and hell and how he gives us life Reconciliation, forgiveness of sins, eternal life, and salvation—all oh, by grace through faith. Man, this is good news, and we should sing about this, should we not? Yeah. Do you have your Bible this morning? Good. Romans chapter fifteen is where you need to turn. And as you're turning there, I want to—I want to tell you that I've been anxious for about the last twelve hours about this weather and—and and, uh, just the timing of it in—in—in in, in my mind couldn't couldn't be worse um, for. This weather to kind of roll in while we're already here. And then as I sat in my Sunday school class a little while ago, it hit me that the timing really couldn't be better for a preacher of the gospel, right? There is a chance that we get snowed in here today. This is is the best timing possible that you might be stuck here all day. That'd be great, wouldn't it? Oh, man, I would love it. I would love it. Last week in Romans... We saw Paul summarize the argument that he started back in chapter 14 verse 1 about how we, as brothers and sisters in Christ, must learn to sacrifice for each other out of love for one another. That we must be willing to set aside our preferences, set aside even our freedoms, voluntarily restrict those things so that we can help each other grow in faith. He also reconnected us with a theme that has really run throughout uh, the book about how Jews and Gentiles are being brought together into one body and one family through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw that we should accept one another because we have been accepted by Christ. And that we should accept one another in the same way that we have been accepted by Christ. That is, we should accept one another when we are still sinners. And in order to change, and at great personal cost... And with joy for the glory of God. We saw that ultimately last week, vertical acceptance, gospel reconciliation, where our hearts are redeemed and saved and changed. And horizontal acceptance, where we have peace with one another and harmony and unity are intrinsically linked together. That vertical acceptance and horizontal acceptance go together every time. And you can't have one ...without the other, and if you have one, you will have the other. This week, we're going to move into the formal conclusion of Romans. That's a big deal. This is the formal conclusion of the letter. John Stott says, the great exposition, that was chapters 1 to 11... ...and the great exhortation that started in chapter 12, are over. Now don't get the wrong idea. We've got several weeks left to go. We are not close to the end of our study of Romans... We still have many weeks to go, and we will see many important lessons in these last few verses. John Stock goes on to say that while the exposition and the exhortation are over, Paul is not finished. And I want to beg you, as we move through this conclusion, uh, not to do what we are so prone to do. When the preacher says, now in conclusion. um, A lot of times when that happens, we lean back. We close up our Bibles, and we check out, and we disengage don't do that. Don't do that with Paul. Uh, Don't do that with me. In fact, if anything, I would say let's, let's lean in a little more. Let's not sit back, let's lean in a little more and see what lessons God might have for us, even in this conclusion. Because we're going to get to a part of it where he's going to say, Oh, tell so-and-so I said hello, and -and such-and-such, tell them that I love them, and oh, I miss so-and-so as well. And we might just rattle through those things as if they're unimportant. But I'm telling you, all of this is important, and God has much to teach us. And we want to lean in a little bit as we study these last few weeks. When we started this study of Romans almost two years ago... I told you that Romans is like an exploded view of the gospel. If you're familiar with uh, auto parts or schematics, something like that, you know that sometimes they take a a piece, a part of a car that has a lot of component parts, and they'll blow it up, and they'll show all the different pieces of it, and they'll look closely at all the different parts of it. And that's what we've done in Romans. We've exploded the gospel, and we've looked closely at each individual little part of it, and we've examined it very closely. And what's going to happen here in the conclusion is it's going to be different than that. We've been looking through a microscope for two years now, through a microscope, and what's going to happen now is that Paul is going to gain some altitude, and he's going to start to look not so much at the component parts, but he's going to look at the whole thing. We're going to look at the whole gospel and the implications of that gospel, and so while we've been looking at it very closely, now we're going to gain some altitude and see the whole picture. Does that make sense a little bit? And so hopefully you'll see that as we move on in Romans. Today we're going to study chapter 15, uh, verses 14 to 21. This is what God's Word says. Romans chapter 15, starting in verse 14. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able also to admonish one another. But I've written very boldly to you on some points, so as to remind you again Because of the grace that was given to me from God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, in Christ Jesus I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. Resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, and in the power of the Spirit. So that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. Let's pray together. God, we believe that you have much to show us today. We believe that you've gathered us in this place at this time for a purpose to show us yourself, and we want to see. So give us eyes to see and give us ears to hear what you would say to us today and give us hearts that would receive it. Like like you did with Lydia, we pray that you will open our hearts to receive the message that you have for us today and that you would change us. God, we we don't want what happens in here this morning to be a mere intellectual exercise of scholarship. We want it to be revelation, power, and authority that can only come from you. So speak in a way that only you can and change us for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Look at verse 14. Paul says, And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with All knowledge and able to admonish one another. As Paul zooms out and starts this formal conclusion of the letter, he wants to clarify the tone of it all. And he wants to reassure them of his confidence in them as a church. So he's going to say to the church at Rome, I think good things about you. And even though I've spoken hard things sometimes, and even though I've taken you deep into the truths of God, I think good things about you. There may be some people who read Paul's letter or were there when his letter was read publicly. And and they may have responded with, who is this guy? Who does he think he is to write to us like this? Who does he think he is to write to us at all? There may be some people that say, Paul, you don't even know us. You've never visited us. You've never preached here before. You don't really know what's going on here. So why would you write a letter like this? So there may be some people who heard it or read it and were somewhat offended by its existence or even by its tone. And so Paul is going to try to smooth that over a little bit here as he closes up the letter. One scholar referred to these words as a little A little harmless diplomatic hyperbole. In in other words, some compliment of them. But I don't think it's hyperbole at all. I don't think it's Paul just buttering them up. I think it's him being honest with them and saying, thank you. Thank you for walking through this with me. Thank you for thinking deeply about these things. And I really do think good things about you. Notice that he calls them his brothers. He says, concerning you, my brethren. He says, we're connected, you're my my brothers, you're my sisters, we are family, and that's why I've written to you. Notice also that he says that they are full of goodness and filled with all knowledge. This is an expression of his confidence in them. He sees them as a church that is mature. He sees them as, as a church that has solid doctrine. He's taken them deep into the things of God, and they have hung with him. They've gone there with him, and they've thought through these things. And so as Paul says this to the church at Rome, I want to say those same things to you. I want to say those same things to First Baptist Church. You're filled with wisdom and knowledge, and you are mature, and you are of sound doctrine. And you have been willing to go for two years into the depths of God's word. And I want i want to say that I think that you are a mature church, and I want to say thank you for going with me these two years, the way we have gone. There are not a lot of places where this kind of things, thing happens. There are not a lot of believers who are interested in thinking hard. There are not a lot of believers who are interested in looking through a microscope for two years. There are a lot of folks that want to say, just just give me five points in a poem. Just Just give me seven tips for better living. Just give me a happy little story and send me on the way. There, there, are, there aren't very many people who say, "Yeah, let's, let's chew on it for two years. And so I do want to say thank you. And, and I want to express confidence in you. First Baptist Church, like Paul is expressing confidence in the church at Rome, it hasn't been easy, right? Hasn't, this study hasn't been easy. We've encountered things that have been difficult. We've encountered things that have been confrontational. There have been times maybe that we've wanted to quit. When I was thinking about this, Uh, In preparation for preaching today, I was thinking about marathon. Uh, Running a marathon is not easy, and it takes a long time, and it's hard, and there are multiple points in which you want to quit. But when you get close enough to see the finish line... There's a whole new energy that comes over you. There's a whole new excitement that all of a sudden we're getting close. We've almost accomplished the goal. And we want to see it that way here at First Baptist Church, here in this part of the text. In the Boston Marathon, uh, the finish line um, is close to a big sign, a big Sitgo gas sign. Uh, Maybe you see this, if you ever see pictures of Fenway Park, you can see it from Fenway Park too. And uh, they say that 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 Sitgo sign is about a mile from the finish line. And so when you get to that sit-go sign, you know you're close. The only problem with that is you can see the sit-go sign for about six miles before you get to the sit-go sign. <laughs> you, you, can, you can see it coming for six miles. So it's really kind of a, a depressing thing too. So maybe this chapter 15 uh, part will serve that way for us. This is the sit-go sign. We're close to the end and we've run a long way and we've learned a whole lot and God has been faithful. Notice also that not only does he say they're full of goodness and filled with knowledge, he says that they're able to admonish one another. I think that's a beautiful picture of the church. Brothers and sisters sharing life together. Counseling each other. That's another translation of that same word, admonish. Counseling each other through questions and through difficult times. I was talking to a Sunday school teacher just a little while ago. And I said, hey, how did did it go this morning in Sunday school? He said, well, it went great. We didn't really get to the lesson today because the class was dealing with something um, that they had encountered throughout the week. And had a bunch of questions. And so we studied the scriptures in answering some of those questions and really had a good meeting, had a good meeting of admonishing one another. And he said, "Well, we didn't really get to the Sunday school lesson. And I said, man, I, I think that's perfectly fine. I think that's what it looks like to live life together as a small group. Sometimes things will come up that need your attention and, and, and the quarterly has to take a backseat to dealing with some of those things. And if we're going to deal with those things from a biblical perspective, I say, let's, let's do it. And that's what it looks like to admonish one another. There's certainly some cases where pastoral counseling is necessary. There are some cases where we've got an issue and we need to go to a professional for some of this admonishing, some of this encouragement, some of this counseling. But man, there are a lot of times where we just need to talk to each other a little more. There are a lot of times where we just need to share our lives and our burdens and our struggles with each other and live together as a family and talk it through together and encourage one another and counsel one another from the Scriptures Uh in a small group. One scholar said it like this. He said, the believers in Rome were expected to help one another toward spiritual maturity. They were to advise and instruct one another. And then he added this, and it's gold. He says, none were so wise that they had nothing more to learn. And none were so inept that they had nothing of value to share. Isn't that the way it works in your Sunday school class? There's no one in your Sunday school. You're in a Sunday school class, Right. If you're not in a Sunday school class, you need to be in a Sunday school class. That's where life happens in the church. It doesn't happen in in this room. You don't get to engage with one another in this room. It happens in those small rooms, and you need to be involved in one of those. But that's the way it is in your Sunday school class, right? There's no one in there that's so wise that they don't have something to learn, right? And there's no one in there who is so ignorant that they don't have something to share. That's what I love about it. We share our lives together, and we learn from each other, and that's exactly what Paul is saying to the church. He's saying, you can do this. You, you have knowledge and you have understanding and you admonish one another. And I want to encourage us to do that more and more all the time. And so get get in a small group if you're not already in one. That's verse 14. Look what, it, look what he says in verse 15. He says, but I've written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again. I like this. That Paul says, really, in this whole letter, I haven't shared anything new with you. I haven't shared anything earth shattering or brand new with you. I've just been reminding you of things that you've always known. And don't you find that to be the case sometimes when you're reading scripture? Sometimes you're reading through the Bible and you think, whoa, that's, that's brand new. Well, no, it's not. Maybe you've read it a hundred times before. Maybe you've seen it a thousand times before. But that day, it appears brand new to you. Maybe because of a different angle. Maybe because of something that's going on in your life. This happened to me just last week in this whole story of Joseph with Reuben. You know, Reuben is this brother of Joseph who, when the other brothers want to kill him, he says, No, 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 let's don't kill him. And I know that story. I know that story backwards and forwards. I could tell you that story a million times, but I've never really considered Reuben's role in it all. Did Reuben do a good thing by saying, let's just put him in the pit, and then thinking he would come back later and and restore him to his father? Or did he not go far enough to save his brother? His brother still ended up in Egypt, right? But in all of it, God is sovereign. God is working his plan. God is doing his thing, getting Joseph exactly where he needs to be. Anyway, the point of that was, um, the point of that was, Uh, Sometimes we read scripture and it seems new, but it's not new. It's been the same for thousands of years. And Paul is saying to the church at Rome, I haven't shared anything new with you. I've simply reminded you about what you have already known. John MacArthur said, a major responsibility of every pastor is to keep teaching his people truths they already know. It's my job. (laughs) It's my job, is to keep teaching you things you already know in a fresh way. He says, in ways that refresh and reinforce So don't expect that you're going to come to First Baptist Church and hear some new revelation. We don't teach new revelation. We teach the revelation of God in his word. And we want to teach it in a fresh way. And we want to reinforce what it says. And and it may be brand new to you because you've never heard it before. But what we sing is not a new song. What we sing, what we teach is not a new story. It's an old song. It's an old story. And we want to be familiar with it, and we want to be reminded of it all the time. The reminding ministry was an important part of what the apostles did. They're constantly reminding folks of what happened in the Old Testament. And we need to be constantly reminding folks of the gospel story. Look at verse 15, part B, the second half of this. He says, because of the grace that was given to me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Spirit. What Paul is doing here in this section is considering his ministry. He's saying, I want you guys to think about my ministry. I want to remind you not just about the gospel, but I want to remind you about my ministry. And I think there are three things we need to see here. First, Paul recognizes his ministry as a gift from God. He recognizes the work that he has been called to do, which has been hard work, right? Has Paul's preaching ministry been ease? Has it been fame and fortune? Has it been an easy road to walk? No, Paul's preaching ministry has been a difficult road to walk. He's been beaten nearly to death, maybe even to death. He has been stoned, he has been shipwrecked, he has been hated, he has been had to escape out of a wall, out of a hole in the wall and be let down in a basket. People have been after his life. And he says, it's a gift. This ministry that I have received, I've received as a gift. He uses the word grace to describe it. So first, he recognizes his ministry as a gift from God. Second, notice that he sees his ministry as being specific. God has expressly called Paul to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And this has been the plan from the very beginning. If you read about uh, Paul's conversion and his call to ministry in Acts chapter 9, you will notice that right off the bat it's clear, this guy, God, Jesus says, Jesus says to Ananias, he says, This guy is a chosen instrument of mine to take the gospel to the Gentiles. From the very beginning, from day one of his salvation, his ministry has been to the Gentiles, to take the gospel to the Gentiles. He is the apostle for the Gentiles, but that doesn't mean he has only preached to Gentiles, does it? Did Paul say to a Jewish person, sorry, sorry, I can't preach to you because you're Jewish. My, My job is to go to the Gentiles. No, that's not at all what he did. In fact, when he moved into a town to do ministry, where did he go first? He went to the synagogue and he preached the gospel first to the Jews. Right? Because that's the way it works. When you read the New Testament, that's the way it's supposed to work. To the Jew first and also to the Gentile. So he went into the synagogue and he preached the gospel there until they wouldn't let him preach the gospel there anymore. And then he went to the Gentiles and really set down roots and set up shop and began to preach to them. So I want you to see that even though his ministry calling was very specific, he was not bound only to that. Even though he was specifically called to preach to the Gentiles, he would preach the gospel to anybody he could. And you need to remember that. You need to remember that maybe if you've been called to do youth ministry or children's ministry or teach in a certain department, that maybe God has specifically called you to that specific ministry, but that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean those are the only people you're supposed to teach. That doesn't mean those are the only people, people you're supposed to reach out to. We preach the gospel to anyone we can, right? First, he saw it as a gift. Second, it was specific. And third, notice that he views his whole work as sacred. He sees the work that he's been called to do as sacred. At the end of that passage I just read, at the end of verse 16, he uses at least three words that are very much temple words. They're very much old covenant sacrificial system words. He uses uh, sacrifice. He uses priest. He uses another word um, that, that is just tied up in the temple. And so what's going on here is he's saying this work that I'm doing, it's like the work of a priest. Not so much in offering sacrifices of atonement. The priest would do that, right? The priest, the high priest would offer sacrifices of atonement every year. He would go into the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle the blood. You know how that goes, right? But the priest also spent most of his time not offering sacrifices of atonement, but offering sacrifices of praise. And Paul is saying sacrifices of worship. Paul is saying that's what my ministry is. I'm like a priest offering to God sacrifices of worship and the sacrifices that he's offering are the Gentiles who are believing in Jesus and the work of preaching the gospel to those Gentiles so that they would believe in Jesus and be saved. Douglas Moose said it this way, Paul pictures himself as a priest using the gospel as the means by which he offers his Gentile converts as the sacrifice acceptable to God. So he's using all of this to say my work. Is sacred. My work is like the work of the priest, offering sacrifices to God. And one of my favorite preachers, uh, named Kent Hughes, makes an interesting application of this. He said, What if we saw our lives that way? What if we saw the work that we have been called to do as an offering that's being given, submitted to God, an offering of worship? What if the task that we've been called to do, we see as as us being a priest lifting up a sacrifice of worship to God that might change the way we approach it. Right. What if we saw our preaching that way? What, what if I came more and more to see my preaching that way? Not just as a task of teaching the scriptures to the people so that they can hear it. What if I saw this whole process as me offering up a sacrifice to God, a sacrifice of worship through the preaching of the gospel? What if we saw teaching Sunday school that way? Not just as communicating truth of the text, but as offering up a sacrifice of worship to God. What if we saw child care that way? Oh man, that'd change everything in child care, wouldn't it? What if, when I get the call from Kelly, hi, this is Kelly Smith, and you're on child care? You know that whole deal, don't you? Um, I saw it as not a, oh boy, I got to miss out this week. I got to be down there with the kids, and I'm going to be extra tired when I leave. What if we got that call and we said, all right, all right, here's an opportunity for me to offer up to God a sacrifice of worship through the care for those children? What about when we take meals to the four seas? What if we saw that as not just an opportunity to feed hungry people and spread the message of the gospel in so doing, but what if we saw it all as an opportunity to lift up to God a sacrifice of worship? What if we did it for him and not for them? Does this make sense to you? I heard a story one time about a, a man who, who uh, showed up at the building of a great cathedral, he showed up as, as the workers were working and they were doing their thing, and he went to one worker and he said, hey, what do you do here? What are you doing today? And this worker said, Well, my job is to cut the bricks. My job is to cut the bricks so that they all will fit and deliver them to the next guy. That's what I'm doing today. I'm, I'm cutting bricks. And he went to another guy who was busy doing something and he said, Hey, what do you do? What are you doing here today? And the man said, Well, I mixed the mortar. My job is to mix the mortar. I've got to make sure the right number of ingredients get in there and it's the right consistency. And I mix the mortar and I take it on to the next guy who spreads the mortar. That's what I'm doing today. And he went over to another guy who was very busy doing a task. And he said, what are you doing here today? What do you do in this place? And he said, I'm building a church. You see the difference in perspective between those guys? I think a lot of times we do ministry. What do you, what do, you do at first bed? Well, I, I, I do childcare. That's what I do. What do you do? I, I, preach, I preach from the pulpit every week. That's, that's what I do. And we're looking at it too closely. What if we said, what do you do? I offer up a sacrifice of worship to God through the preaching of the gospel. I, I offer up a sacrifice of worship to God as I do childcare. What if we saw it that way? I think it would change the way we do childcare. I think it would change the way we preach the gospel. I think it would change the way we fix meals and take them to the four C's. And I think Paul saw his ministry just as that. Not, I'm going, I'm going to take the gospel to the Gentiles, but I'm offering up a sacrifice to God as I take the gospel to the Gentiles. Does that make a little bit of sense? Then look what he says next. Verse 17. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. In Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. And I want you to know that we have every reason to boast in what God is doing around here. We have every reason to boast, not in something that we have done around here, but what in what God is doing around here. And we've got this golden opportunity to do just that next Sunday night. You want to be here next Sunday night for Menu for Missions. It's going to be a night where we're going to boast. We're going to boast in what God has done around here and around the world in the last year. We're going to boast. It's not going to be a night where we say, hey, everybody, come to First Baptist and see what we have done in the last year in missions. We're going to get together and we're going to say, look at what God has done. Let's boast in him because he has accomplished great things and he's invited us to be there to be a part of it. Does that make sense? If the tone of that night becomes look at us and look what we have done, it stinks. And we won't do it again. But if the tone of that night becomes, man, look what God has done. Then it smells good to him as a sacrifice, and we'll do it all the time. And that's what it must be, right? Maybe, maybe in your Sunday school class uh, last week or the week before, your teacher might have walked through some numbers. We, we got a report from the Illinois Baptist State Association about, about giving across the association throughout the state. A thousand churches in the IBSA and First Baptist ranked 19 in general giving. That's cool, Right? Thousand churches in the state association, and for Lottie Moon Christmas offering, First Baptist Church was fifth. Man, that's incredible, right? And if for one second we say, "Look, look at this! Look what we have done!" We boast in ourselves and our generosity. If there is one moment of that, it's gross. But if there is all of this, look at what God has done. I heard a guy say. I heard a guy say at a meeting the other day. He said, uh, "Fewer, fewer people." Doing more with less. Fewer doing more with less. I'm telling you, if that's the case, then only God could do those kind of things, right? And so we boast in Him, and we give glory to Him. We praise the Lord for this. So you need to be here next Sunday night. You will hear what God has done, and we will have an opportunity to boast in Him and eat some good food. Like, what else would you do on Sunday night? What could be better than that? Nothing. Nothing could be better than that. Look at verse 18. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit. Notice that Paul is quick to reiterate that the salvation of the Gentiles is not something he has accomplished. It was Christ who did that work. Therefore, Christ is the one who gets the credit. I won't presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. If we will learn to see the work that happens in ministry as work that Christ has done, if we will begin to see the good things that happen around here as work that God does, then we won't be tempted to take any of the credit ourselves. But when we start to see it as something we have done, we'll start to boast in ourselves, and we'll start to take the credit, and we can't do that. One scholar I was reading said, if we were to take the credit for the good things that happen around here, it'd be like Da Vinci's paintbrush taking credit for the Mona Lisa. It's ridiculous, right? the little paintbrush says, oh, look what I did. Look at this thing that I did. Millions of people come to check me out every day. That's not the way it works, right? And what would da Vinci think about that? What would da Vinci think if his paintbrush spoke and said, look at the great thing I have created, Mr. da Vinci? Break the thing in half and throw it out the window, right? Because paintbrushes aren't supposed to talk. But you get the picture, Right? We can't take credit for something we didn't do. Another guy told a story for you sports folks about a little leaguer. A little leaguer who was at bat, and he swings and he misses, strike one. And the pitcher throws another pitch, swing and a miss, strike two. And the pitcher throws another pitch, and he makes contact, makes kind of hits the ball. This is a great day for a little leaguer, right? And it's a dribbler back to the pitcher. And the pitcher picks it up, and he throws it over the first baseman's head. And it goes to the fence. And the, and the little kid that hit the ball, he's running, and he gets to first base, and he rounds second. And the first baseman runs over to the fence, and he gets the ball, and he throws it. And guess what happens? In the left field, the ball goes, right? And so the little runner gets to second, and he rounds second, and he's headed to third. And the left fielder gets the ball, and he throws it to third. And guess What happens? It goes over his head too. And there is this close play at the plate as that runner rounds third and he gets home and the catcher runs over to get the ball and chases him back and runs and dives and the the hitter slides in and he's safe and he stands up and he says, that's my first home run. Mom, dad, I hit a home run. No, you didn't. You didn't do anything good. You hit a dribbler back to the pitcher, and everything worked out for you to score. And man, I want, I want to learn to see ministry that way. I've never hit anything more than a dribbler back to the pitcher. And God has worked it out for good somehow. And I can't take any credit for that. Only, only he gets credit for that, right? So notice that he recognizes that any of the work that's been accomplished has been Christ's work. Notice also that he talks about his ministry being by word and deed. He says, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. His ministry was about word and deed, and he learned this from Jesus. If you've been in Sunday school recently, we're studying in Matthew, and you're watching this cycle of word and deed in Matthew from Jesus, right? For a while, Jesus will meet with people, and he'll talk to them, and he'll teach them. Sometimes he sits down and teaches them for a long time. And then he'll get up and he'll go into a place and he'll heal people or he'll feed people or he'll help them in some other way. And then he goes right back and he sits down and he teaches. It's this ministry of word and deed. And Paul says, that's the way my ministry has been as well. And what I want to present to you is that's the way our ministry must be. It must be by word and deed. John Stott says, words explain works. The words explain the works And the works dramatize the words. So in other words, when we do ministry around here, it cannot be only words. Our ministry as a church cannot be only teaching. We must serve and help and feed and clothe. It cannot be only words. But also, our ministry as a church cannot be only works. It cannot be only clothing and feeding and helping people when they're in need. There have to be words also. So we want to follow the pattern of Paul when he does ministry, which follows the pattern of Jesus when he does ministry, which follows the pattern of Moses when he does ministry, which follows the pattern of everyone God has used in his kingdom, and have a ministry of words and deeds. Words and deeds. It must be Both of those things. And notice finally in this section, verse 18, that all of this happens by the power of the Spirit. All of this is empowered by the Spirit. One scholar said, it is He, the Holy Spirit, who takes our feeble human words and confirms them with His divine power in the minds, hearts, consciences, and wills of the hearers. All morning I've been singing this song along these lines in my head, not so much out loud, that'd be bad. But in my head, I've been singing this song that says, All is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. So brethren, pray. And holy manna will fall all around, right? All is vain. We could stand up here and preach our guts out. And if the Holy Spirit doesn't do anything, nothing's going to happen. We could go out there and serve our guts out. And unless the Holy Spirit moves, nothing of value in eternity is going to happen. All of our ministry must be empowered by the Holy Spirit. All is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. Look at the next part of verse 19. This is incredible. He says, so that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. You catch what he's saying there? He's saying, I've done it. This this whole area, I've preached the gospel here. I'm ready to move on to someplace else where the gospel hasn't been preached because I fulfilled my ministry in this area. Three times he made a circuit. Three times he took a trip and preached the gospel in this area. And he says, I've done my job here and it's time to move on, which is absolutely incredible. It does not mean that Paul has preached the gospel to every single individual in that area. It's about 1,200 miles that he's talking about here. It doesn't mean that he's preached the gospel to every individual in this area. It doesn't even mean that he's preached the gospel in every town or village in this area. What we need to understand about Paul is he understood his ministry, his calling, very clearly. And he had a clear and good strategy to accomplish it. So what Paul's ministry looks like is that he would go to the most urban, he would go to the most influential area... And he would preach the gospel there. That's why we have letters to the church at Corinth and Ephesus and Thessalonica. These are places that are urban and concentrated and strategic and influential. So he would go to those kind of places, and he would preach the gospel there, and by God's grace, people would believe in Jesus Christ there, and a church would be planted there, right? This is the way it goes. And next, Paul would spend some time with them, and he would train up leaders in those churches so that the church could be cared for, so that there would be someone there to take care of that local congregation, but also so that from that urban center, people would be sent out into the rural areas that surrounded there, and they would hear the gospel that way. Paul didn't see himself as being responsible to do it all. He saw himself as a pioneer when it comes to missions to go and to get the movement started, to be used by God to get the movement started. Does this make a little bit of sense to you? And and it happened. It worked. He went to these places and a church was born and the church was strengthened and then the church spread out so that the gospel was preached not only in the urban centers but in the surrounding villages, in the surrounding communities. That's the way Paul saw his ministry and he's ready. He's ready to go on and do that in another area now, which is Spain that we'll read about next week, I think. R. Kent Hughes said, Paul preached the entire 1,400 miles from Jerusalem to Illyricum. And then he adds this comment. He says, not bad for a guy in sandals. (laughs) Covered a massive area with the gospel. Not bad for a guy in sandals, right? And he says, that's what my ministry was about. is about pioneer ministry. Look, he affirms that in verse 20 when he says, and thus I aspire to preach the gospel... Not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see. And they who have not heard shall understand. It was pioneer work that he's been called to. But I want you to hear me clearly. That was his personal call. That's not the mandate for all of us. God has and God is calling some of us to ministry like that. Our friends that are in Central Asia are doing ministry like that. They're going to a place where there's not a church. Going, they're go, they've gone to a place where there is not a presence and a preaching of the gospel. There's not a foundation, and they're going to take it to that place. And it is an urban center. They're not out in a rural village. They're in an urban center. It's very much, it's very much parallel with the ministry that Paul was doing. And God has specifically called them to that. But even Paul recognizes that not everyone is called to that kind of ministry. Even though he was, he recognizes not everyone was. Because he uses language sometimes about, I planted, Apollos watered, but God caused the growth, right? And so there are people that God is calling to plant seeds, but there are also people God is calling to water seeds. And there are other people that God is calling to bring in the harvest someday, right? He uses another image about a building. That's what he uses here. He says there are some people that God has called to lay the foundation. But there are other people that God has called to build the walls. And there are other people that God has called to put the roof on. And the application we're going to make in a minute is I don't know know what part of the work that God has called you to do. But you need to do what he has called you to do. I for one am thankful for the foundation that has been laid here at First Baptist Church. I am thankful for the other's work that I inherited when I came here. In fact, I had a meeting just the other day. Um, with some other pastors from the area, and Jack Lucas was there. Some of you who have been at First Baptist for a long time know Jack pretty well, um, know that he is the son-in-law of Mike Davis, right, um, and served on staff here for a while. And we were talking as, as pastors about some challenges in the church, and one of them said, you know what, I really struggle with my Sunday school teachers. I struggle with how to train my Sunday, how do I teach my teachers, how do I train them? And I was able to speak up and say, you know what, I'm really thankful for Mike Davis, I'm really thankful that Mike Davis instituted this Wednesday night workers meeting way back, 20 years ago, right? At least 20 years ago, he instituted that thing, and it still exists today. So when I came to First Baptist, I didn't have to fight a fight to learn how to, uh, to, to figure out a way to train the teachers. It was already there. And so I told this whole story, and Jack, Jack looked at me and he said, you know what? I really needed that today. I've been missing my father-in-law, and I needed to hear that today. So so my point is, we we need to thank God for some of the foundation that was left, right? We need to thank God for some of the building that was already existing. And we need to not be afraid to continue to build upon that. I want to be appreciative of those things. And I think that's the kind of ministry that God has called me to. Not to pioneer work. Not to pioneer work. I don't think that's his calling on my life right now. But you know what? It may be the calling on some of your lives right now. Maybe some of you hear this text where he says I want to name Christ where he's not been named before because I don't want to I don't want to build on another man's foundation. Maybe some of you that just sets your heart on fire, man, if that's the case, go do it. Go do it. But maybe some of you are being called to come in after that, after that and continue to teach and continue to affirm and remind people of the truth that they have already heard. So Paul sees his ministry very clearly and of course His vision is informed by scripture, a scripture from Isaiah. What a great picture that is. They who had no news of him shall see. And I love when our friends from Central Asia call us and tell us about a new believer. Because it's that. that's, That's what's happening there. The people who had no news, they're seeing. Those who didn't have any message, they're understanding. Because someone's there as a pioneer preaching the gospel to them. Okay. Application time from this text. And you're going to need to get used to this over the next few weeks because um, the, the structure of the letter kind of falls apart. You know, we've been building this nice, concise argument for the last two years. And here when we get to the conclusion, it kind of all falls apart. And it's going to be a little more disjointed when it comes to the applications. But they're good applications. And there are like 17 of them from this text. So don't check out, right? We started, we started the day by saying don't check out at the conclusion. And I want to end the day by saying don't check out at the conclusion. Application number one, good for you, First Baptist Church. Good for you. I am proud of you for this study. That we have reviewed what we have already known, that we have gone deep into the things of God, that we have sweated That we have cried, that we have bled together, that we have thought hard, that we haven't sat back and taken it easy for the last two years, but I feel like we've worked hard for the last two years, and I want to say I'm proud of you for that. I want to say thank you for that. I want to encourage you that this is not a weak church. This is not an immature church. This is not a church on the brink. This is a solid church, and I I want to affirm you like Paul affirmed the church in Rome. Second application, let's counsel each other. Let's counsel each other. Let's admonish one another. Because we're mature, because we're growing, because we're solid, we can help each other out. Our first, maybe this is going to be corny, but maybe our, our first move is not to call in the pros, but to call in the bros. That's good preacher stuff right there, right? You don't need to, you don't need to have your first move to call in the professionals. If you have a friend, a brother or sister in Christ who's struggling, go to them. Walk with them. Help them. Or at least just sit with them in the midst of their misery. Job, Job's friends did a good thing at first. They didn't do a good job with the counseling. They probably weren't ready for that. But when they showed up at first and they just sat with him in the ashes, that was good. When they opened their mouth, it went bad. But it, it was because they, they hadn't grown to a place where they could open their mouths. But I think a lot of you have. And you could come alongside your brother who's struggling and say, I've been down that road. Or you know what? I just read about it yesterday in the scriptures. Let me, let me show you what I've read. And when that happens, it's a beautiful thing. And we've been called to do that with each other. Now, when, it, when the pros need to be called, call them. Don't hesitate for that. But don't make that your first move. Help each other out. Let's counsel one another. Application number three. All of life. Is sacred. None of life, none of your life is secular. If you'll learn to see it that way, it'll change the way you do everything. Like a lot of us separate our ministry and our job. We say, oh, yeah, when I, when I come to church and when I teach Sunday school, then I'm offering up a sacrifice of worship to God. I see what I do here. Or, or when I go on a mission trip to Arizona or Central Asia or wherever, then I'm offering up a sacrifice of worship to God. But when I go to school, I'm just doing my job. When I go to work, I'm just doing my job at secular. Oh, if you would learn to see all of your life as sacred. That when you go teach those little kids... Tuesday, you're offering up a sacrifice of worship to God. Or when you go down to the coal mine or the field or whatever it is that you do, you're not just accomplishing a task. You're offering up a sacrifice of worship to God. It will change the way you do your job. And this is not just coming from Romans. This is coming from throughout Scripture. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. Serving, serving Christ rather than men. That's how we approach our job. All of our life is sacred. None of it is secular. Do everything you do as sacrifice of worship to God. Number four, do what he has called you to do. Think about all of those words, do. (laughs) This This is a call to action today. Do what he has called you to do. Don't try to do what he has called me to do. I won't try to do what he has called you to do. But if we will all do what he has called us to do, we will function like the body we are supposed to be. Right? The eye can't say, I don't want to be an eye. I want to be an ear. No. Eyes have to be eyes and ears have to be ears. And if the eyes will be eyes and the ears will be ears, we'll be able to see and hear. If we will do what he has called us all to do as individuals, we will work like we're supposed to. But where we get in trouble is some of us don't do anything. Let me rephrase that. Many of us don't do anything. Many of us that are part of the body don't do anything. And consequently, many of us have to do things that we haven't been called to do. We've got, people, we've got people serving in ways that they're not gifted to serve. I'm thankful for them, though, because they've stepped up into the place that someone else should be. They've been willing and available, and I thank God for them. But the better case would be the folks that are gifted. The folks that are supposed to be doing those jobs would step up and do them. Have you ever heard preachers talk about the twenty eighty rule? It's true. That 20% of the people in the church do 80% of the work. That may be conservative, to tell you the truth. So do what he has called you to do. Maybe it's pioneer missions. Go, sell your house, quit your job, and move to the jungle, and do it. This is not a joke. This is serious. Some of you need to do that. Maybe, maybe you need to come in and teach a Sunday school class that someone has been teaching for years and years and years and needs a break. It's not pioneer work, but it's important. Do what he has called you to do. And then the last application is that we should recognize that any success that we experience has nothing to do with us. Any win, we don't get to take credit for. Now, maybe the opposite is true. The losses, we probably do get to take credit for those. But the wins are not ours. Anything good that's happening at First Baptist Church is not because of us. It's in spite of us. And it's a gift from God. And we need to praise Him for it. And we want to boast in Him. Praise the Lord for the good work He does, right? Did you notice in Sunday school this morning that that uh, or was this last week the harvest is plentiful that was last week the harvest is plentiful the workers are few so pray to the lord of the harvest that he would send workers into his harvest the whole deal is his the whole kingdom is his and he said i want you to be a part of it i want you to experience some of it but it's his work it's his job it's his glory don't try to take it for yourself let's stand together and pray God, help us to respond to your word today. Help us to to not just hear it, but to do it. Help us to be obedient followers who live life as a sacrifice of worship to you, who do what you are calling us to do, who give all the glory to you, us to live like that. But God, our our greater prayer, our deeper cry of our hearts is that you would save sinners in this room today, that you would reach down by your grace and teach boys and girls, men and women about their sin. Teach them that they deserve judgment, punishment, punishment, Hell, because of their sin and teach them that you love them anyway and you sent your son Jesus to take their sin and to suffer the punishment in their place as their substitute teach them that Jesus died for them and rose again and is victorious over sin and death and hell and offers life and reconciliation to you forgiveness of sins salvation that you offer it as a gift received by faith so I pray that men and women and boys and girls would repent of their sins today turning from sin and self and turning toward you pray that men and women and boys and girls in this room today would believe would rest their whole weight on Jesus Christ for salvation trust in him alone, and that you would receive glory in it all, in Christ's name.